Hello, I'm Charles Looney. I was the pastor of a, an EPC, uh, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, here in town for about three years. Uh, and now I am uh, the director of the South Rome Redevelopment Corporation, uh, which is a nonprofit devoted to interrupting the generational cycle of poverty through improved housing, education, wellness, and economic development. Uh, but I've been attending Seven Hills, and I'm, uh, of course, uh, really excited to be able to be here today uh, and to get to be in the pulpit again. Uh, it's uh, always a pleasure and a good time. Let's, uh, let's start with prayer. Father, I thank you for the ability that you have given us today to come here together as a body of believers to worship you and to open your word, your holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Father, you have protected this sacred message for thousands of years down through the generations. We ask that you would protect it again here this morning, protect it even from me. Help us illuminate our minds so that uh, we can understand what you have told your covenant community for generations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our text this morning comes from Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of heaven and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and, and every beast in the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed its place up with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, typically what I like to do um, is I like to take a passage in preaching and begin to and you go through it and then kind of pick it apart and go through kind of uh, idea by idea, verse by verse, and, and really pull out the theological implications. And that, I really enjoy doing that. But today, I want to do something a little different. I want to use this uh, text as a kind of a launching pad where we can uh, explore this uh, a bigger picture. We can actually look at this concept called the meta narrative of Scripture. Now, the meta-narrative of Scripture, it's kind of a fancy word for just big story. 
Because the Bible is a meta narrative. Now, to put it into context, the way the, the Bible works, you got to think, um, think about TV shows, right? You have TV shows from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And in these TV shows, you have a bunch of micro narratives. Every episode is a micro narrative. But in the TV shows of the, you know, 50s, 60s, and, and whatever, there was no meta narrative. There was very little character development from episode to episode. Because the producers and the writers, they kind of had this idea, this crazy idea, that people weren't going to actually watch every single episode. And they figured, well, if you jump into season three, episode two, you need to be able to know what's going on. But today, there's been a pretty significant culture shift with regards to TV shows. I mean, we have Netflix, right? We can binge watch. I mean, so, they, so now the TV shows are almost entirely driven by meta-narrative. In fact, can you imagine jumping into episode two of season, season two of Stranger Things and not seeing anything before it? You'd be lost because you don't know the meta-narrative. It's completely driven. This big story is completely driven because they want you to get hooked and they want you to keep coming back to see what happens. Well, the Bible is a lot like that. You have a whole bunch of, of smaller series, a bunch of stories, but they, all these stories go together to create a much bigger story. They all build on each other to create this much bigger story. And the plot line for the Bible is basically four points. Creation, everything is good. Fall, everything goes bad. Redemption, God works to set everything straight again. And then restoration, he sets it all straight again. I had a professor uh, in seminary would say, well, you know, it's really the oldest uh, plot known to man, right? Boy has girl, boy loses girl, boy fights to get girl back, boy gets girl back. And you can put it in more theological terms. God has his people, God loses his people, God fights to get his people back, God gets his people back. And that's the story of Scripture from, from Genesis to Revelation. But I want to put that meta narrative into a, a little more context and so let's jump back uh, into one of the earlier episodes here. We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 3. Now, we just read chapter 2. That was creation. Everything was good. Everything was functioning properly. But now, let's go back into 3. And we're going to pick up after Adam and Eve, the most, one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament. Adam and Eve ate of the tree of which they should not eat. And the world literally, literally fell apart. Okay, so this, is, so this is what happens. You get to chapter 3, and because of their disobedience, the world falls apart. But I'm gonna, there's another four. I'm sorry, fours are going to keep showing up. There are four relationships that you're going to see in chapter 3 that are dysfunctioned. They show up in chapter 2, and they're functioning properly. But when you get to chapter 3... They're not functioning the way that they're supposed to. So first, right, let's look at the relationship between the individual and God. So in chapter 3, you see this, this is after the fall. We read this. Well, actually, let's start with chapter 2. So in chapter 2, uh, the Lord God took the man and put, the, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you shall surely eat of the tree of every tree of the garden. 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that and the day you eat of it you will surely die. But then they disobey God. And then this is what we read in chapter 2, verse 8. And they heard the sound of God walking in the cool of the garden, uh, the cool of the day, in the garden in the cool of the day. Which, by the way, just pause there for a second. How many of you know what the sound of God walking in the cool of the day in the garden sounds like? Right? Even there in the fall, there's this indication that the relationship between uh, Adam and God was so tight, so intimate, that he knew what the sound of God walking in the garden sounded like. He expected it, right? So he hears it, and then this is what happens. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. See, all of a sudden, this relationship between the individual and God that worked perfectly in chapter 2 has become frustrated in chapter 3. It's falling apart. Adam feels the need to hide from God. Then there's the relationship between uh, the individual and others. So if you read, if you keep reading, verse 11 in chapter 3, and he, God, said, told, who told you you were naked? And he, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? But the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Which, by the way, you have to put the right emphasis on that, right? That woman, God, that you gave me, right? He's saying, it's complete blame shifting. Okay, you know, he's saying, that woman, remember, that was your idea, God. You, and this is y'all, you two. But look at the contrast between that and chapter 2, when God brings Eve to Adam, and he says, Uh, In verse 23 in chapter 2, then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, if you're reading that in your Bibles, that's that's written. Yeah, see, it's, it's written a little different there. It's not written in paragraph form. And the reason for that is because in Hebrew, it's poetry. This is actually the first, like, love sonnet. Adam, he's, he's just caught up with, with Eve and who she is. And you go on in verse 24, Therefore, uh, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's this great unity language, but when you get to chapter 3, all that unity falls apart and turns into blame shifting. The relationship between the individual and others has become frustrated. And now, that oneness that was there before isn't possible, not to the degree that it was before. But then third, there's a relationship between the individual and nature. Now, this one's probably a little more obvious. You pick up in chapter 3, verse 17, you read this, And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken. For you are dust. To dust you shall return. That's stark contrast to God taking Adam in the garden before in chapter 2 and saying, here you can eat of any tree of the garden you want, 
oh, but don't eat of this one because you'll die. See, the implication there is the garden produced everything that Adam needed, Adam and Eve needed to survive and to live. And death was not in the picture. But now, thorns and thistles. The ground doesn't produce its full yield. Death, hunger, starvation, sickness, disease, it all enters the picture now. Because the relationship that we as individuals have with the created order has broken down. And then there's the fourth relationship, the relationship between the individual and the self. We read at the end of chapter 2, And the man shall leave his wife, oh, sorry, uh, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Now contrast that with verse 7 of chapter 3, Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths, made for themselves loincloths. So here, Adam and Eve are covering up because now shame has entered the picture and they have to hide. They have to hide. They can't stand to be looked at and scrutinized. You see, before there was no shame. Now, what is shame? Shame is personal self-disapproval. Shame is when you put yourself in the judgment seat and you're looking at yourself in a mirror, as it were, maybe literally, maybe figuratively, and you're saying, not good enough. Shame represents a, it is, a broken relationship with ourselves. So, you know, it, this is, so if there's a broken theology, a broken, uh, uh, a broken biology, a broken uh, sociology, a broken psych- psychology, I, all of this brokenness that comes out of the fall. And what's more, all four of these relationships account for all of human experience. Everything that you and I experience on a daily basis is the result of either one or some combination of all four of these relationships. And where it gets even more interesting, okay, this, is, this is where I start to sound like you know, an infomercial, there's more, because there is. All these broken, all this brokenness, it actually accounts for pain. Every bit of pain that we experience in life is the result of the, these broken relationships. In fact, if you're here today and you're kind of cynical of, of the Bible and you say, okay, maybe the author of Genesis was um, kind of insightful into the human, uh, human situation, um, but, but that doesn't mean chapter 2 exists. Okay. A professor of mine in college wrote an article entitled, Why We Ask Why. And in it, he makes the argument that pain is the most common human experience. It's something we all experience to one degree or another every single day of our lives. And yet, when real pain hits... When a loved one unexpectedly passes away, when you're on the floor with a kidney stone, the first question is always, why? And he makes the argument in this article that we ask why because we're always shocked. But why would we be shocked if it's something that's supposed to happen, if it's something that's so common? Maybe it's common but maybe it's not natural. Maybe like a fish gasping for air on the dock, pain is that moment when we all are longing for chapter 2. 
Maybe pain is your heart's way, your soul's way of crying out to you, saying you weren't meant for this world. Or at least pain wasn't meant for this world. It is an invasive species that doesn't belong here. Well, the good thing is that this is a meta-narrative. And the story doesn't end with chapter 3. There's more to the story. And if you keep going in the story, you get to this Jesus guy. Which, by the way, the Bible, if you just stop at the end of the Old Testament, it is a story in search of an ending. The metanar- there is no meta narrative if you just stop at the end of chapter 3. It's a heck of a cliffhanger between seasons. You get to the end of chapter 3, and you just, well, that's it? Where's the salvation? And you don't get it until you get to Jesus, until you, you start to see how God is, has been weaving this promise of this Messiah, this, this, this uh, prophecy of this new covenant. You don't, begin, you don't get to see how the whole thing is going to turn out until you start to get to Jesus. And when you get to Jesus, something really interesting happens. These four relationships show up again in the ministry of Christ. And not only that, everything that Jesus does works to heal all four of these relationships. So let's go through them. Jesus is God in the flesh. Son of God, God in the flesh, walking the earth, a relationship with Jesus begins to heal the relationship between the individual and God. Now, I have to tell you, there's this reform concept called the now and not yet, which is that we begin to experience restoration now, but we will not experience it fully until the new heavens and new earth. So keep that in mind. But as you begin to get to know Christ, you begin to get that restored relationship between, between the individual and God. Because now that barrier, that gap between the world that is and the world that ought to be closes a little because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because we can now go to him and walk with him in the cool of the garden. Because we don't have those barriers anymore. And we can begin to experience some of that restoration of that relationship here and now. But then there's the all the miracles that Jesus did. Now, if you've ever wondered, I mean, okay, so this is God in the flesh, right? He could do whatever he wanted to do. He could cause cheeseburgers to fall from the sky if he wanted. Nobody would have known what they were, but he could have. But he doesn't do anything like that. Everything that he does, all the miracles that he does, everything that he says is showing that he has come to reverse the effects of the fall. And so all of his miracles, if you look at his miracles, what does he do? He feeds the hungry. He's reversing the curse of the ground. He heals the sick, right? He raises the dead. He's constantly setting the created order right again. And everything that he's doing, he's healing the relationship between the individual and the created order. And we can experience some of that now. I know the effectiveness of prayer is a topic for a whole other sermon. But God does listen. And sometimes prayers are answered. And we do begin, we can see some of that healing here and now. 
But then there's the relationship between the individual and others. Well, look, Jesus, every time, you know, he was always talking about, a lot of the stuff he talked about anyway, was this new kingdom, right? And he said things like, you have to, you have to love your neighbor as yourself and love your enemy and treat others the way you would want to be treated. And what's he doing? He's setting up, he's setting up an ethics for his kingdom that is specifically geared to reverse the effects of the fall. Instead of, instead of uh, Adam blame-shifting, Right, he's saying, you know, and all this divisiveness, he's saying, no, you need to come together and you have to love one another. And husbands are to love their wives the way Christ loved this church. Everything that he's doing, everything that he's preaching, and everything that he wants us to, to do and be as followers of him is to work to undo the effects of the fall. In fact, Jesus himself, if you go to Romans chapter 5, uh, Jesus is... Uh, Paul there talks about how Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus is the Adam Adam wished he could be. He's the the perfect Adam, the Adam that should have been in the first place. And so where Adam, for example, was blame shifting when it was his fault, Jesus took the blame when it was not his fault. It's a complete reversal. And then there's the relationship between the individual and the self. Now, this one, again, is a little less obvious, but imagine that you are one of these social outcasts. You're a tax collector, or maybe you've sold yourself for money. No one wants to be around you. When the religious elites are coming down the road, they actually cross the road, which is a real thing that they would do, cross the road so that they didn't have to come within 10 feet of you. How do you feel about yourself? Then the most important man to ever walk the face of the earth comes to town. And he comes to your house, and he sits at your table, and he eats off of your plates, and he asks you about your day. And now how do you feel about yourself? A relationship with Christ begins to heal the relationship between the individual and the self. Everything that Jesus did was working in this meta-narrative to reverse the effects of the fall. Now, you might be saying then, okay, but why couldn't God just reverse the effects? Why do we have to have this personal relationship with Christ? Well, I left out something in the beginning. The relationship between the individual and God is the keystone relationship. If you've ever seen these rock arch, arcway, archways, you know, you, you've got all the rocks that are pressing on one kind of triangular rock right in the middle, and that is the, that's the keystone. If that is pulled out or if it crumbles, the whole arch falls. Now, the relationship with God was the relationship that was offended by the disobedience in the Garden of Eden. That was the sin that caused everything else to fall apart. And so doesn't it make sense then if everything is going to be restored in the, in, the, in the meta-narrative, it makes sense then if that relationship has to be restored in order for the sinlessness to come into the picture and allow us back into chapter 2. In fact, well, there's a pastor uh, in Asheville, a uh, church that we used to attend, uh, told a golfing story. I think it's pretty common for pastors. 
And he tells a story. He says, you know, I love golfing, but there was this uh, golf club or resort or whatever, but it was really exclusive, and you had to know somebody who was a member in order to get in. So I just couldn't afford to, to buy a membership. Uh, and I always wanted to go golfing there. It wasn't until one day one of his congregants said, you know what, I know somebody, uh, show up at this time at the first tee. He said, okay. So he shows up with his, his golf clubs and everything, and um, you know, he's running a little late, so he, he runs, runs up to the, to the tee box, and he meets a guy, it's a nice guy, they kind of hit it off a little bit, <clears throat> and then they start playing golf, and, and he says, you know, it was amazing how just immaculate the course was. You expected to come around the corner and see somebody like on their hands and knees with scissors trimming the grass. It was so well maintained. And what's more, the customer service was just incredible. There was always somebody there on hand. You know, can I get you something to eat? Can I get you something to drink? Can I get your ball out of the water? Just constant service. He said, and, and at one point he said, man, these people are treating me like I'm a VIP. He said, does everybody get this treatment? He didn't, didn't quite understand. And then as they were going to, I guess, going to the back nine or something, they drove past the front of the clubhouse, and he noticed the sign that he had hastily run past on his way in. And suddenly, as he, he noticed on the sign down at the bottom, there was a, the, the name of the owner. And it suddenly struck him, I'm playing with the owner. And then it dawned on him, I'm getting treated like a VIP because of the VIP I'm with. You see, there are some things that you can't get into by paying for it because you can't afford it. Sometimes it's not what you know, it's who you know. And that's exactly the way it works in the meta narrative of Scripture. If you want that record, if you want to get back into chapter 2 where everything functions properly, you have to have a relationship with the one who can get you in, the only one who has the record to get you in. And by your relationship with him, you get that record, you get that VIP status by virtue of association. And so in one of the most shocking plot twists in history, God actually takes that broken relationship and he pays the price to fix it. And through the fixing of that relationship provides a way back where everything is restored. Now, if you're here today and you don't know Christ and you want to be uh, in that relationship, I'll be glad to make the introduction. I'll be glad to talk with you afterwards. And we can begin to uh, show you how this relationship works and how, how you can get to know him more. With that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the ability to come here today to open your word, study the good news of your gospel, to see the amazing consistency of the meta narrative of Scripture how you have worked events so that you have provided a way back for us through the person and work of your Son. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to make this more and more a reality in our lives, that we can understand it more, and that it would change who we are. In Jesus' name we pray.